0: I'm Peter Oakes. I teach New Testament at the University of Manchester. Sometime around the end of the first century AD, an early Greek Christian writer produced an astonishing book of visions. In the 2000 years since then, Christians of all kinds have picked up this book of Revelation and found that they could relate it to their own situation, whether they were in the Byzantine Empire or medieval Europe or in the Protestant Reformation or the French Revolution, or in apartheid South Africa, or the Cold War between the West and the Soviet Union, or in the Middle Eastern politics of 21st century America. But what is the book actually about? Why was it written? What is it about the book that makes so many very different people see their own situation reflected in it? Are there ways of reading Revelation that fit well, or don't fit well, with the nature of the book? One of the courses that we currently run here at Manchester is called End of the World and Apocalypticism. The strand of Jewish literature that we call apocalyptic, seen in biblical books like Daniel and Ezekiel, and in non-biblical Jewish texts such as One Enoch, had a huge impact on the development of early Christian thought. We see it in the portrayal of Jesus in the Gospels and in Paul's letters, Most obviously, we see it in the book of Revelation. The book is packed with Jewish apocalyptic imagery. But that imagery is fitted together in very surprising ways to fit the book's own specific agenda. But what is that agenda? What is the book of Revelation about? The first answer to what the book is about has to be a description of the book's contents. So here goes. The book sets itself up as a revelation. In Greek, that's apocalypsis, meaning an unveiling. The book starts with the words, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. A few lines later, this John starts writing a letter. John. So the seven churches that are in Asia. Asia here refers to a Roman province with that name. It was on the west coast of what is now Turkey. John tells his reader that he's on an island called Patmos, just off that coast. He says that he's on the island because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And that John shares with his readers in experiencing persecution. Now comes the first vision. John sees a glorified Jesus standing among seven golden lampstands. These represent the seven churches that John is writing to. The language of the vision is over the top, way beyond what could literally be true of a real person. For instance, Jesus is holding seven stars and there is a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Jesus tells John to write down what he's seen and what is to take place after this. We then get the text of seven letters, one to each of the seven churches. Some churches are praised for standing firm under persecution. Some are criticised, especially for tolerating activities that John sees as unchristian. Those who stay faithful are promised all sorts of great rewards after the seven letters. John gets swept up into heaven. There he sees a vision of God's throne room filled with amazing sights, sounds and creatures. On the throne, God holds a scroll that is sealed with seven seals. Who can open the scroll? The answer is another amazing creature, which is described as a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. This is another vision of Jesus. Again, the language of the vision is clearly somehow symbolic. It couldn't be a literal description of a person or even an animal. The Lamb starts to open the seven seals. Mostly, the opening of each seal brings some kind of catastrophe on the world. The first four seals bring forth the well known Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, associated with war, famine, and so on. The fifth seal brings a plea from the martyrs that their blood would be avenged. After the sixth seal, 144,000 people from the tribes of Israel are protected, and a great crowd of people are heard praising God and the Lamb. The opening of the seventh seal leads to a series of seven trumpets. Seven angels blow the seven trumpets. Each of the first six trumpet blasts produces further catastrophes. At the end of these, pretty much everything in the world, indeed everything in the cosmos, has been at least partially destroyed. After this, there is a comment that the people who survived all the plagues did not repent of their misdeeds. Two people who are described as witnesses appear. They prophesy and they exercise miraculous power for 1260 days, which is a multiple of seven. They're then killed by the beast that comes up from the bottomless pit. People celebrate. Then the witnesses come back to life and are taken up to God. The seventh trumpet is blown bringing announcement of the victory of God's kingdom. The next vision is of a woman clothed with the sun who gives birth to a son. They are pursued by a great red dragon, but God and the earth act to protect them. Then there is war in heaven. Michael and his angels fight the dragon and his angels. The dragon, Satan, is defeated And thrown down to earth. This produces a song of triumph in heaven, but a warning of woe to the earth. On earth, the dragon is joined by a beast from the sea and a beast from the earth. The beast from the earth forces people to worship the beast from the sea and causes everyone to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. No one can buy or sell without the mark. The mark is the number of the beast. Six. 6.6. Six six the lamb on the and the hundred and forty four thousand are then seen. An angel announces the fall of Babylon. Another angel calls for the harvest of the earth because it is fully ripe. Seven bowls appear containing the seven last plagues of the wrath of God. Each bowl is poured out, piling on more and more catastrophes after the sixth bowl. Kings gather for battle at the place called Armageddon. We've already seen a vision of a woman clothed with the sun. Next, we see a contrasting but also shining woman. A prostitute, labelled as Babylon, is adorned with gold and jewels. She sits on a seven-headed, ten-horned beast. She is drunk with the blood of the holy ones and the blood of the witnesses to Jesus. Mysterious explanations are offered about the beast's heads and horns. The horns and beasts turn on the prostitute, devouring her and burning her up. The fall of Babylon is announced again. John's readers are called to flee from her. Kings and merchants mourn her. In heaven, there is celebration because the martyrs have been avenged. A third woman is introduced, the bride of the Lamb. She too is brightly clothed, this time in fine linen, which is the righteous deeds of the Holy Ones. The final battles begin. On a white horse is a rider called the Word of God, Jesus again. He and his armies defeat the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies. The dragon, Satan, is thrown into a pit and bound for a thousand years, a millennium. During this time, The martyrs reign with Christ. After the thousand years, Satan is released, gathers the nations for war, is defeated again and is thrown into the lake of fire. The final judgment takes place. Death and Hades are thrown into a lake of fire, along with anyone whose name is not found written in the book of life. The final vision is of a new heaven and a new earth. The new Jerusalem comes down from God. God will dwell with people and wipe away all tears. Death will be no more. The New Jerusalem is vast, magnificent with jewels, and containing the tree of life whose leaves are for the healing of the nations. The book ends with promises of the swift return of Jesus and a warning not to change the book's words. The very last words are a wish for grace written in the style of the end of a letter. To recap, the book is a revelation to John on Patmos. He sees a vision of the glorified Jesus. There are seven letters seven churches, then a vision of God's throne room in which a surprising lamp appears and opens seven seals on a scroll. Catastrophes follow and martyrs plead for vengeance. Seven trumpets bring further catastrophes Two witnesses appear, prophesy, are killed, come back to life and ascend to God. A woman gives birth to a child, is pursued by a dragon, but protected by God and the earth. Michael and his angels defeat the dragon and his angels in a war in heaven. The dragon is cast down to earth and is joined by a beast from the sea and a beast from the land who makes everyone bear the mark 666. The harvest of the earth is announced and seven bowls pour out God's seven last plagues. The prostitute Babylon, drunk with the blood of the Holy Ones, is devoured and burned by the seven-headed beast on which she sits. John's readers are told to flee from Babylon, whose destruction is mourned by kings and merchants but celebrated in heaven, where the bride of the Lamb is revealed. The word of God, riding a white horse defeats Satan and the nations. Satan is bound for a thousand years, during which the martyrs reign with Jesus. Satan is released and, with the nations, is defeated again. Final judgment takes place. Satan, some people, and death itself are thrown into the lake of fire. A new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem are revealed, containing the tree of life for the healing of the nations. The book ends with the promise that Jesus will return soon. As well as that outline of the book, I ought to mention three other features. One is that the language about Jesus is closely entwined with the language about God. This is most clearly seen by comparing the start and end of the book. In the first chapter we get, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. In the final chapter, there is, See, I am coming soon. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. It is I, Jesus, who sent my angel to you with this testimony for the churches. Even though God and Jesus appear in many ways to be different in the book, the book also makes them in some ways the same. The second feature is numerology, special use of numbers. There are obvious ways in which major parts of the book are structured in sevens. God's spirit is also described as being sevenfold. Sevens also feature in the descriptions of both the lamb and the beast on which the prostitute Babylon sits. The latter is surprising given that seven is generally a very positive number of the book. I'll return to that. Sevens also feature in periods of time, which tend to be multiples of seven. Much more subtly, astonishingly so, many key terms occur in multiples of seven, scattered throughout the book, terms such as Christ, Lamb and Witnesses. Some terms also occur in multiples of four. There is also the number 666, more on that soon. A third feature is the violence of much of the language, together with the stereotype descriptions of female figures and in the case of the prostitute Babylon, a combination of stereotyping extreme violence. All this produces the sharpest current debates among scholars working on revelation. The issue that divides scholars can be seen, for instance, in the war in heaven. The war is described as a violent struggle between angels. But the voice that then celebrates God's victory says, The accuser of our comrades has been thrown down. They have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not cling to life even in the face of death. Is this about a violent war between angels or about the deaths of Christ and the martyrs and about the effects of their persuasive words? The same kind of issue is raised by other passages, For instance, the military victory of the word of God riding on a white horse. Is that about warfare or about persuasive words? In a related way, should scholars focus on stereotyping and violence in the book's depiction of female figures or on the groups or powers that those depictions may symbolically represent? Or should they maybe focus on both? So what is the book of Revelation about? The first answer I would give is one that most users of the book don't pay attention to. It's a book about Jesus. Jesus, the slaughtered but triumphant lamb of God, is the one who opens each seal on the book of history. Then at the end of the story, Jesus is the one who finally defeats Satan and the armies of the nations. The book also teaches about the effects of Jesus' death on the cross and about how Jesus and God are closely entwined so that titles used of God ought also to be used of Jesus. The book of Revelation is also about God's providing vengeance for the martyrs. People have been persecuted and even killed because of their allegiance to God. The book speaks to the people who have seen this happen. The book tells them that God is on the side of those who were killed. He will take revenge on their behalf, destroying the institutions and people who killed the martyrs. When reading a passage in the Bible, we can easily assume that we're reading a general account of salvation and judgment. However, the passage may instead be addressing a specific issue. To a great extent, Revelation is about God addressing the specific issue of who is on the side of the martyrs, who will avenge their deaths. This leads into a third explanation of what the book of Revelation is about. It's about encouraging persecuted Christians to stand firm, to be confident, to stay faithful to God and to a distinctively Christian lifestyle. The book does this by showing the Christians how their situation and their future look when seen from heaven's perspective. The Christian path is not the dangerous one. Even if it leads to martyrdom, it is the path protected by God. The truly dangerous path is that of opposition to God. The book of Revelation is a call for the Christians to stand firm in the face of persecution and of temptation to conform to the Roman culture around them. Roman culture, because the book of Revelation is also about Rome. The surprise of the book Beast Having Seven Heads, usually such a positive number, is explained in Revelation as being because Babylon sits on seven mountains. Rome was proverbially built on seven hills. This then fits with the prostitute being later described as the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. It also fits with the city's for being mourned by the merchants of the earth and with the prostitute being drunk with the blood of the holy ones and the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. Even more specifically, the book is linked to Nero. The book's second explanation of the seven heads of the beast probably links to Nero. The number 666 is code for Nero Caesar, written in Greek, using letters for numbers, then switched into Hebrew. This is a puzzle that was only unraveled in the 20th century with the discovery of the name in the Hebrew text. The book of Revelation is also about earth and heaven. Earth and the bodies in heaven, sun, moon and stars, get terribly battered through the book. Yet heaven is the dwelling of God with many of his creatures, and earth protects the woman clothed with the sun. But in the end, both earth and heaven flee before God on the day of judgment, and a new heaven and a new earth appear. Is this replacement or renewal? The question is probably not relevant. The whole book is dreamt in symbolism and visionary language. Just as there is no literal sword coming out of Jesus's mouth. There is no scientific description here of what will happen to stars, sky, sea and land. The book's reassurance is that after cosmic ecological trauma, there will be a peaceful, perfected ending. All this complicates a final explanation of what the book of Revelation is about. It is about the future. How can we have a useful account of the future if the symbolic, symbolism and visionary language are so pervasive that there is no clear programme to be inferred, even from such an, such an apparently clear statement as one saying, that heaven and earth flee away and new ones appear. Such statements are possible to visualise artistically and religiously, but not possible to present in a scientific scheme. The book of Revelation is about the future, but it depicts the future in terms that are often symbolic and always in the dreamlike language of visions. To sum up, in my view, the book of Revelation is essentially a literary set of visions expressing John's belief that through the death of Jesus and the faithful witness of Jesus's followers, God will avenge the martyrs and bring righteousness and peace to heaven and earth. Two common types of reading of Revelation don't do justice to the book. One type is the historical Jesus that was produced after Constantine and after the Protestant Reformation. In that reading, the events of the seals, trumpets and bowls are seen as now being in the past, corresponding to past persecutions by the Roman Empire or for the Protestants by the Church of Rome. In this type of reading, the interpreters see themselves as now enjoying enjoying the millennium, a time when the church has arrived at peace after the conversion of Constantine or the discovery of the Protestant gospel message. However, that does not fit John's vision in Revelation. Most problematically, the interpreters are ignoring the ongoing evils of their own day The fact that their churches may now be flourishing is far from meaning that Satan has been bound and Christ is reigning. All sorts of oppression and evil continued in the post-Constantinian Empire and the post-Reformation churches. Another problem is that a core feature of John's millennium is that it is the resurrected martyrs who reign, whereas in the post-Constantinian and post-Reformation churches, It is those who admire the martyrs who end up in charge. A third, subtle but central problem is that the book of Revelation is a set of visions seen from the viewpoint of Christians in the midst of persecution. If the interpreter tries to place themselves near the end of the book, in the millennium, the visions are unlikely to work. They are visions of the future from the perspective of persecution, Transforming them into visions of what is now past, from the perspective after persecution has finished, somewhat deconstructs their nature as visions. They become some sort of symbolic account of history, and that's not what they're written as. A second type of reading that does not work is one that tries to construct a scientific programme for the past, present and future from the book of Revelation. The tech really will not bear this. It's too thoroughgoingly symbolic, vision-shaped and broad-brushed to make it possible. The catastrophes of the seals, trumpets and bowls pile up intolerably on each other and in many cases cannot fit into a modern scientific scheme. Earth and heaven flee from God. Where does that fit into a scientific programme? The answer to this is not selective conversion of all the problematic vision language into metaphorical accounts of this or that literal event. There is indeed convertible symbolic language in Revelation. The book itself symbol signals that Babylon represents Rome. The sword from Jesus's mouth relates somehow to speech. However, the overall set of the book's visionary language and symbolism cannot possibly be, co- be coded metaphor for a long, long string of specific events in the world of John's own day. Even less is it reasonable to try to do the same for later centuries or the present day. Like the first type of usage, it will be building on thin air and will inevitably produce a constructed scheme that in reality actually contradicts the text in many places. The criticisms of the two types of reading I've just talked about, also suggests a type of reading that chimes more closely with the book of Revelation. This is a type of reading in which the readers see themselves as being in situations comparable to those of John and his first readers. It's also a read that lets the book and its predictions of the future remain radically visionary and symbolic. In this type of reading, the readers either see themselves as suffering for faithfulness to God, or they see others suffering, or having suffered in that way. This reading draws from John's confidence in the situation and the outcome. The reading does this despite being aware of John's language of the first century Roman Empire, very different from how we might write. The reading also draws from John's calls both to faithfulness in the face of persecution and to maintenance of distinctive moral behaviour in the face of negative alternatives. This reading also draws from John's reflection on the relationship between Jesus and God. This reading draws from John's confidence that God is on the side of the faithful, whatever their suffering and apparent prospects currently are.